Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. There are seven new confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Illinois, bringing that total to 32. Health officials say now is the time to act to reduce the spread of coronavirus. We don't want to wait to when we have hundreds of cases or thousands of cases. We are not closing our schools, but we are monitoring the situation on a day-to-day basis. Every decision that I um, have made and every decision that I will make pertaining to COVID-19 is steered by data, public health guidance, and medical professionals. That's right. The novel coronavirus and the way it's changing our daily lives is easily the biggest story of the week. We're most grateful to have around the table this week, host of the Daily Gist podcast from Cranes, Amy Guth, WBEC editor Kate Grossman, and Dan Petrella of the Chicago Tribune. Dan, the governor has been holding daily press briefings, and there was a big one last night. What's the latest? Pritzker is holding these every day at about 2.30, although last night it got pushed back by a couple hours while they got things together. The latest is that they are mandating that all events with 1,000 people or more be canceled for the next 30 days. Then they're going to reevaluate, see if they need to extend that. They're also strongly recommending that any event, public or private, that involves 250 people or more also be called off, postponed until after May 1st. The governor's also spoken with the owners of the sports teams in town, asked them to either cancel games or play them to empty stands until May 1st. Um, so it's going to be a really big change to the the cultural and social life in Chicago and the surrounding area as, you know, the weather's starting to warm up and uh, people are looking to, to get out of the house a little more. Well, I want to put this into context for people. On Monday, Illinois had 11 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Tuesday, it jumped to 19. Wednesday, it was 25. Then yesterday, it was 32. Kate and Amy, how has the messaging changed as this week has progressed? And you've been listening to these press briefings and hearing both at the state and the federal level uh, how government is responding to these things. Amy? Well, you know, I think that it's been really important that we have had those daily press briefings from state officials. People want information. It's when they don't have the full picture. That's when we have to worry about misinformation being so rampant. And, you know, right before we went on, I was telling Dan that I have literally woken up every single night for the last two weeks worrying about misinformation Mm -hmm. and media literacy at this moment when it's so very critical. So I think that's been really, really important. I think from the beginning, they've, they've managed expectations pretty well by saying this is a rapidly changing situation. We're looking at it day by day. I think those things are very important because it's very hard to talk in absolutes right now. Yeah. And Kate, at, at the education level, that's a very fluid situation right now. What are we seeing there? Well, I'll just tell you, the State Board of Education has a new tracker on their website, which we discovered this morning, which has the number of schools kids affected and school districts. And when I first looked at it this morning, it was 100,000 kids affected. And when I looked at it just before I came in here, we were close to 130,000. So it just keeps ramping up every couple of minutes, literally. You know, Catholic schools, archdiocese schools today announced that they will close down on Monday. The mayor had a press conference this morning said that uh, CPS will continue to be open except on case-by-case basis where there is a COVID-19 case at an individual school. I don't know how long that's going to last. I mean, the pressure is really growing. A lot of parents are upset and frustrated. They've said, you know, this new rule that Dan just talked about, you know, no more than 1,000 people and really no more than 250, of course, all schools have that in spades. Um, you know, the the city is defending that by saying, you know, the transmission risk between kids is low. 
and they're trying to focus on the neediest populations and kids really need the schools for lunch. You know, parents are working, a lot of low-income families that, uh, you know, so that's one of their main justification. But really, you know, whole states now are closing their schools. I, I, the pressure is really growing, you know, and, and to your point about the messaging, I mean, literally, this is just changing minute by minute. So who, who knows? I, I don't have any insight to that they're going to close. I don't want to suggest that. But yeah. It's just hard to know how things are going to change. Well, we're getting some breaking news here. The Washington Post is reporting that President Trump will declare a national emergency in response to coronavirus. So not sure when that announcement is, is, is expected to come down, but we'll be watching that here on WBEZ. Dan, how often are we hearing from public health officials? Public health officials have been at these daily briefings with Pritzker every day. Um, Dr. Ngozi Azike, the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health, is there on a daily basis providing updates on the new cases, the number of patients as they can. And um, Dr. Allison Arwady, the uh, Chicago Public Health Commissioner, has been there on several days. She was there with the mayor yesterday, um, also providing details on the cases in Chicago. Because right now, all the cases are clustered in the Chicago area, the surrounding counties, and we haven't seen any downstate or elsewhere yet. So here's some of what we've heard from Dr. Azike and Dr. Awadi. While older adults appear to be suffering more severe illness, the young child in Chicago is a reminder that anyone can be infected with this virus. Dozens, if not hundreds, of additional close contacts will need to be identified, contacted, and have their information gathered and be monitored. Many of the people who have been diagnosed with coronavirus here in the Chicago area are well. They've not needed to go into the hospital. In some cases, they have entirely recovered. But the focus on the older individuals is important. So some messaging there saying, you know, yes, there are risk groups. They tend to be older people, people with uh, compromised immune systems. Amy, you and the reporters from Crane Chicago Business have been following the twists and turns of how coronavirus is impacting business in our area for your podcast, uh, Daily Gist. Give us a sense of what we're seeing there. You know, one thing that I think has been really interesting to watch is the, the mounting numbers associated with McCormick Place and just what's at stake there and how many millions of dollars that puts into our local economy. If you're just looking at the cancellations so far, so with the announcement last night that Pritzker made, that brought the total cancellations up to 20, uh, 20 events at, at McCormick Place, which is 197,000 attendees. And if you start thinking about the number of hotel rooms, the rides, the taxi and Ubers and things like that, restaurant dollars, things like that, we're looking at a much larger economic impact. I think, too, United has felt this very, very early as one of the largest U.S. carriers to Asian destinations, they very, very quickly started to see some concerns there around that. And then to add in the travel restrictions added just a couple of nights ago, there's, you know, there's a lot on the plate of United Executives right now to look at that. But, you know, I want to go back to yesterday's messaging from uh, officials. I thought what what Governor Pritzker said yesterday was so important because the overriding message was really, hey, it's not about you. You might be healthy. Healthy bodies can carry germs. I think that was so important. It was the messaging around you we have a responsibility it's we have to make sacrifices at this time to protect the most vulnerable in our population and i thought that
that was so important because I think there's a little bit of this kind of too cool for school right now. Like, eh, I'm not worried. There's a little of that. And, and this narrative that it's either you have to choose between panic and apathy. And there yeah. is an obvious third choice to me, and that is be informed and kind of accept the hand that's been dealt to us and, and act accordingly. And I do think there are some sacrifices there with social distancing and things like that. Well, part of what I've been thinking about over the last few days is is whether or not part of the response to this pandemic now is because the people who are most deeply affected are people who are often invisible. We're talking about elders in our community. We're talking about people who have compromised immune systems. That's not necessarily, you know, readily recognizable to someone if they just look and they say, oh, you have a compromised immune system. So it's like the people who will be impacted are folks who we don't necessarily think about in the ways we should. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think, I believe it was Mayor Lightfoot who said this yesterday yesterday. She really stressed workers staying home if they are not feeling well, not able to go to work. And I think her phrase was something along the lines of nobody's job is that important that you need to endanger other people around you. And just on a note of how quickly things are moving, um, as we've been sitting here, we were talking about schools just a minute ago, an alert from the Tribune popped up on my phone saying, yeah, and that um, Chicago Teachers Union is now calling for Chicago public schools to be canceled. So Mm. we'll continue to watch that situation as it develops. That that brings up a huge question about what it means for students, students who have housing insecurity, food insecurity, what kind of remote learning opportunities there are, what it means for teachers and for the support staff in CPS. What do we know about that so far? Obviously, there's a lot of different factors. Um, You know, if school closed, a lot of kids eat their meals, certainly breakfast and lunch at school. Uh, A lot of parents, you know, can't take off work although it may turn to a place where everyone is taking off work. But part of the pressure that's growing is that the schools that are closing, at least were first out of the gate, tended to be the wealthier suburban and the private schools. And this this is sort of equity question about, like, why are those kids somehow more precious than, you know, regular Chicago public school kids? And so, you know, that's an issue. I mean, the press conference that the mayor and the public health department had this morning, you know, they keep stressing the data you know, that the science, we need to keep focused on the science and that there isn't a reason to keep kids out of school. They really keep coming back to that. I, you know, the, the social pressure to close may overcome, you know, especially, you know, it, now that the CTU is calling for it. I mean, our Facebook page has been blowing up with parents saying, God, you know, just close the schools already. There's a lot of, uh, I know you're saying people are like, you know, too cool for school. I'm sort of hearing the uh, maybe I'm I'm talking to the panicked folks, but people are panicking. As you said, it's sort of the maybe it's the panic, panic and the apathy. apathy. Yeah. yeah, they just want sort of swift action taken. You know, there's also this issue about we had the strike, of course, in right. CPS in the fall. You know, we're making up five of those eleven days. Um, you know, nobody wants school to be out, and e-learning on a widespread basis is not going to happen in Chicago public schools. There just isn't the technology. Well, we spoke to Dan Montgomery, president of the Illinois Federation of Teachers, in the first hour of the show, and he was talking about some of the creative thinking that's uh, going into what happens if CPS shuts down, using bus drivers to deliver food um, and learning materials to students, so those bus drivers can still collect checks and that kids can still uh, get access to resources they need. So it'll be really interesting to see if CPS shuts down, what kind of creative measures they take to continue to support students. But he also said something really interesting, and I think it's important to point out. I asked him whether or not he thought this revealed a need for just better preparation on the state's 
um, level, at the education level, to make sure we are prepared if there's an outbreak of disease, if there's some sort of natural disaster. And he said, yeah, this is a result of austerity measures that have happened over the past several years, cutbacks that have made it more difficult for us to be prepared for this kind of thing. Amy, your thoughts? Well, I think that's even going to have a bigger impact. I'm already wondering, how is this going to shape what we believe about work? Even the attitude of like, I'm going to just kind of soldier through, I've got a cold, I'll go to work, it's fine. There's this attitude that if you stay home from work, at least prior to this, that you were somehow not really, yeah, Mm -hmm. you're being lazy, you're playing hooky. And I think that we might see something very different. Also, a lot, I've seen, I've been watching really closely watching I love to get the kind of the pulse on things of looking at social media what are people saying about x right about this and so many people have been saying you know it's so funny how my employer said my job was not possible to do remotely and suddenly it is and I think it's making people rethink workflow and technology and what what technology can be used how and I think that's going to be really interesting to see what shifts in that space after that but I think we're in this moment where we are not used to culture and I probably even around the world, we're not used to having unknowns. We have greater access to information than ever. We want to Google it and know right then. And we have to be comfortable with the unknown right now. We have to just say, we don't know what we don't know yet. We have to wait and see. And I think that's fueling a lot of feelings for a lot of people. But it'll be interesting to see how history treats, especially just the way that we treat work and our attitudes around work. Dan, as a, as a politics reporter, when you look at how the state is responding, what resources we have in place and we don't have in place, I mean, what's your thinking around you know, how prepared we are really for something like this? Well, one of the things that uh, Governor Pritzker has been very vocal about this week is his criticism of the federal government, the speed of its response, the availability of tests, the decision early on that was made by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, sorry, bungled the name there, but to not um, import test kits from the World Health Organization, to uh, not allow labs and research facilities to develop their own tests. And um, he's been, you know, banging the drum on that all week. He's been on CNN, MSNBC, talking to the New York Times, uh, trying to point out to federal officials that we need more of these test kits here in Illinois and across the country. And um, I guess the Trump administration made some announcements this morning that some of that is forthcoming, but we'll just see um, how that works. But there are people out there who want to be tested who aren't able to because they don't meet the the um, criteria right now. I'll just jump in and say, too, I mean, to that point when, Jen, when you talked about the numbers went from nine to this to that, you know, the numbers are undoubtedly much higher yeah. because so many people haven't been tested. So we really, you know, not obviously not just in Chicago area, but across the world, really, but in the United States in particular, because of the limitations on the number of tests, we really don't know how widespread this is. It's the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. Our panelists today include Dan Petrella from the Chicago Tribune, Amy Guth from Crane's Daily Gist, and WBEZ's own Kate Grossman. And we're breaking down the latest on coronavirus in our area and the impact it's having on schools, business, politics, and more. I do want to slip in a couple of headlines on other topics because there is other news happening this week. Invitations to participate in the 2020 census began arriving in mailboxes yesterday. Once residents get those mailers, they can log onto the website my2020census.gov to fill out their questionnaires. (laughs) Advocates say if residents don't fill out the census, Illinois could lose up to two congressional seats and billions of dollars in federal funding. Chicago aldermen want state lawmakers to end a special surcharge on city residents' gas bills 
bills. The surcharge helps people's gas pay for a pipe replacement and modernization program. Activists say customers are bearing the burden of the program, which is over budget and behind schedule. Dan, speaking of state lawmakers, they will not be meeting for a planned session next week in Springfield. Another casualty of COVID-19. What's happening there? Yeah, they were. uh, The House and Senate were both scheduled to go back into session. Um, They've been off this week. They were supposed to return on Wednesday, the day after the primary, and they have canceled the three days that were scheduled next week. No word yet, uh, at least as far as I know, before I came into the studio about the week after that. And then I think they had a a break scheduled. But um, we were just discussing in the newsroom this morning, you know, there are not a lot of time before their May 31st budget deadline. It sounds further off than it is. And if they cancel a bunch of days, what kind of crunch are they going to be in to get a state budget passed this year and deal with some other big issues, property taxes and other things that they've been talking about discussing so far this year? A lot of stuff was kind of moving slowly ahead of the primary, and we'll get to it, you know, in March when we come back after that. But now that's kind of all in question how much they're going to be able to get done this spring or if they'll go into overtime this summer. Well, I should mention that Congress has closed the U.S. Capitol and House and Senate offices to the public through April 1st. And just a few minutes ago, Louisiana became the first state to announce it's delaying its primary election due to coronavirus. Illinois' primary election is next Tuesday. Dan, is that a possibility here? Uh, As of last night, they were saying no. Things are going ahead as planned. They extended the um, vote-by-mail application deadline in Chicago a little bit. They're opening early voting hours more. Um, we'll see what the governor has to say at 2.30 this afternoon, but um, they were pretty adamant last night that we were going ahead with plan as planned with the Tuesday primary. Well, there are questions about how COVID-19 could affect turnout, could potentially put poll workers, many of whom are in their 50s and 60s at risk. And questions like these may have seemed overblown even a few days ago, but a lot has happened over the last 48 hours. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Breaking news, the Dow is about to close momentarily. It has plunged around 2,000 points today after another sheer bloodletting on Wall Street. And its worst one-day drop since Black Monday in 1987. The shed is closing down until at least March 29th to limit the spread of the coronavirus. Professional leagues are suspending play. College and high school games are canceled. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker's mandating events of a thousand people or more be canceled immediately for the next 30 days. Amy, things have gotten a lot more serious as the week has progressed. And, and one of the things we talked about this week was the concern of hourly workers, gig economy workers, about how they make ends meet if things are shutting down. Yeah, at the United Center alone, you're looking at about 1,300 workers that are impacted by this, right? So for every concert, for every Blackhawks game, for anything that happens at the United Center, there's around 230,000 uh, just in payroll right there per event. And then there's another close to that same amount of the city and state um, amusement tax, right? So there's a very big economic impact right there, aside from the big number just associated with the NBA, just with that alone. So, you know, again, it goes back to like very hard decisions having to be made at this time that are not easy ones that have a lot of economic impact to them, for sure. And Dan, turning back to polling, uh, some polling places, particularly those in senior house Housing facilities were moved. Both the city and county are looking to move dozens more. What's the latest there? Um, I think it's in the couple dozen now polling places that have been moved. Um, that's still a fluid situation. They're still trying to find alternate sites for some of them. Basically, trying to get people from the public to not be going into places where there might be vulnerable populations as much as possible. 
yet another thing that hopefully we'll get more details uh, on from the governor this afternoon. But it's also something that's going on statewide. He's mentioned this instance um, a couple times this week of the Quincy Veterans Home, which had its own problem with the disease outbreak a couple of years back, which is why people in this area might know of it. But um, they moved a polling place out of there, and they're encouraging election officials across the state to to take consideration to do that. So, Kate, I want to turn to colleges and universities and, and how they're handling the coronavirus outbreak, which we should mention again is now a pandemic. What measures are we seeing from schools in the Chicago area and across the state? Uh, well, like many things, this has moved very fast this week. At first, there were no local schools that closed. And as schools across the country started closing, they just fell like dominoes here in the Chicago area and Illinois. We have all the major, you know, University of Illinois, Northwestern, U of I, DePaul, et cetera, et cetera. They're all closing down. Um, a lot of them are sort of around spring break. So they're telling students not to come back from spring break or to go on spring break and not to come back. And the goal is for all of them for at least a couple of weeks uh, to move to remote learning, online learning. And are they in a better position to provide remote learning than, say, our K-12 through schools in Chicago? Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> actually, Kate McGee, our higher ed reporter, is at work today on that question. Like, are they actually ready? <laughs> I think we'd be surprised to find that a lot of places are not ready. You know, that some school, some professors are sort of old-fashioned paper and pen, and they don't use the, use the Internet. So um, it's not clear. It's going to be pretty bumpy. You know, certain de- certainly depends on the school and the class. But I, I, I don't think they're going to flip a switch and everything's going to go online. One thing I have been so fascinated to watch the past few days is Professor Twitter. Hmm. And so many professors are taking to social media and going, okay, I'm using this tool. I have these materials. Here's a Google Doc link. Here's this. I mean, there were professors that were like, new to Twitter, but hey, I'm going to put a hashtag geology so that maybe other people looking for the... It's really yeah. interesting to watch professors like jumping in and some have been on social media a long time, but some are saying, hey, I just have started this because I think this is a good route to share resources with each other. I think that's been a really fascinating thing to watch this week. Dan, a few years ago during the long budget stalemate um, with then-Governor Bruce Rauner, public universities in the state suffered. I mean, enrollment dropped, some staff were laid off, and that was because schools were not being fully funded. Do we have a sense of what kind of effect COVID-19 could have on, on the state budget? Those are some of the questions we're asking today and we've been asking over the last couple of days. And really, it's too early to tell at this point is what people are saying. One of the earliest indicators we'll get is um, later this month. When sales tax receipts from February start to roll in, but that was kind of before things really ramped up with the outbreak of the virus. So, you know, sales tax receipts from March, which we'll find out in in April, will kind of be an early indicator. But, you know, things like income tax, if people lose jobs, things like that won't be known for for some time because those won't be paid till next year. One big question is, you know, if the stock market continues trending down, what does that do to the state and city pension funds, which still are recovering from the the Great Recession? Um, still have huge unfunded liabilities that are in large part are results of that downturn a decade ago. Um, so, you know, the state's budget year ends June 30th. They might be able to eke through and keep balance for this year. The question is, what happens to the new budget year that starts July 1st? Well, and I'm thinking back to Governor Pritzker's budget address, and, and he made a point of talking about reinvesting in the state's rainy day fund because it had been deplete it. And this is the kind of situation that you need a rainy day fund for. But the state doesn't have one, Amy. So where does that leave us? Well, I think that's the question to be asked, really. And I think that's that's what we're all wondering of, of what that means and what, what that is next. And I think it's another moment where we have to kind of wait and see what's ahead for us. And, and you know, as Dan said, watch for what are the receipts the month out? What are, you know, what does that look like in the months ahead? 
And a question there, too, is the money that he wants to use to invest in the rainy day fund comes from this graduated income tax vote that's happening in November. And what effect does a possible downturn in the economy have on people's willingness to support what is being portrayed by opponents as a big tax increase? The governor would say a tax cut for 97 percent or no raised taxes for 97 percent of Illinoisans. But that's another possible impact depending on what the long-term effect on the economy is. It's the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. Our panelists today include Dan Petrella from the Chicago Tribune, Amy Guth from Crane's Daily Gist, and WBEZ's own Kate Grossman. We're breaking down the latest on coronavirus in our area and the impact it's having on schools, business, politics, and more. And just to broaden the lens beyond Illinois for a moment, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers has declared a public health emergency over coronavirus. That move will help free up resources to respond to the virus. There are eight confirmed cases in Wisconsin right now. Meanwhile, in Indiana, Governor Eric Holcomb took a similar step to Governor Pritzker by discouraging non-essential gatherings of more than 250 people in places like churches, stadiums, and auditoriums. And that announcement came as the NCAA and the Big Ten called off basketball tournament games scheduled for Indianapolis. Indiana currently has 12 cases of COVID-19. Okay, we've got just a few minutes left to talk about some non-coronavirus news. Amy, you've been following the ongoing saga of Chicago-based Boeing. What's the latest there? I have, and interestingly, today is one-year ex- Exactly, that the 737 MAX was grounded. Mm. So it's very interesting here a year out to watch all that's transpired at that company. What the latest is, is there was a group of banks that have agreed to to loan Boeing some money just for a bit of cash to keep things going during their crisis of the 737 MAX as it continues to be grounded. And they initially drew $7.5 billion of that, and they've more recently decided to take all $13.8 billion of that to have that cash reserves. As of December 31st, First, they had $10 billion in cash on the books. But what's really been interesting to watch is some of the cultural pieces. It felt like for a while there that every couple of weeks, another shoe dropped at yeah. Boeing. You know, there was a whistleblower at a factory that was talking about pieces of shrapnel or, you know, metal parts like left in inside of planes and wires and things like that. It was just, it kept, it felt like it was so much. Finally, CEO Dennis Muhlenberg was ousted at the end of the year and some other leadership. The new CEO, David Cal. Calhoun really came in initially with this attitude like, I'm going to be very transparent and show you all of the bad things and all of the bad decisions that were made. And then more recently, just in the last couple of weeks, he's walked that back. In a piece in the New York Times, he he expressed regret for really ripping Dennis Muhlenberg in the way that he did. So it seems that coupled with this loan kind of paints a picture of like, okay, maybe that didn't work. Let's Mm. try this other thing because we are really hemorrhaging a lot of cash right now. That said, it's an interesting moment when you apply the crisis that air carriers are in that's compounded by coronavirus they were in that crisis because of Boeing in the first place because they were expecting delivery of all these aircraft that were just sitting there waiting for recertification all of the uh, you know all of the the FAA officials and then even airlines and pilots unions were saying hey we need to be retrained on this this isn't going to work quite as seamlessly as perhaps you think even then suddenly enter you know put coronavirus into that picture suddenly it starts to almost shift a little bit because the demand for the aircraft isn't there I mean I, I 
obviously the the public health part of this is the most essential to talk about, but it's an interesting, almost on the book, silver lining to this that might play out a little differently than than perhaps expected for that industry. Well, and I should mention that on Monday, we'll be talking to your colleague, John Pletz, about how COVID-19 is affecting the airline industry. That's Monday on the show. Uh, Dan, a story you've been keeping your eye on comes from a couple of your colleagues. It's about a bill being considered in Springfield about how campaign funds can be used by candidates running for office. Quickly, what's going on there? That's right. My colleagues, Jamie Monks and Antonia Ayers-Brown down in Springfield wrote a story this week about a bill that would let candidates use campaign funds to pay for campaign-related child care expenses. This is something that is kind of technically allowed under state law right now, but it's not explicitly allowed. And they feature a uh, candidate who ran unsuccessfully for the state house in 2018, who submitted some receipts from child, for child care to her campaign treasurer, who said, no, 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 you can't do that. So this is just really trying to open the door to more women, especially um, younger women, young mothers, to to run for public office by being able to cover some of these expenses that would allow them to campaign with their campaign funds. I mean, candidates can use uh, campaign funds to pay for their legal fees when they get in trouble with federal authorities. So it's kind of uh, crazy that we need to specify that you can use it to pay for a nanny or someone to watch your kids while you're out campaigning. Well, Kate, on this heavy week, um, you brought us a story that combines two unlikely companions, insects and a famous pop star. Please explain. (laughs) So Kate McGee did this really delightful story about a a U of I grad student who has named a treehopper insect after Lady Gaga. Because apparently, the, and the picture suggests that this bug is known for vibrant colors and strange shapes, which is not dissimilar to Lady Gaga. Um, so it's obviously a ploy for attention, but it's also, he says, the grad student, it's not just, it's not about him, it's about, about bugs, like bringing attention to bugs, especially ones that haven't been been studied, because mm-hmm. that's what you know found this bug and he named it. You know that that that's the issue that we're we're not aware. Apparently, there's a lot of bugs out there that haven't been identified, and he's um, he has plans to name another one after Cardi B. He's on a roll, this guy. <laughs> so the picture, if you want to see, is on our website. It's uh, it's described as kind of having shoulder pads. I've seen it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It's quite a look. <laughs> it's quite a look. Like Lady Gaga's outfits often. It's so. a very popular story in the newsroom, given all the heaviness this week. I'm very curious about the Cardi B bug, though. I got to see that one. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't know if that one's been identified yet. Actually, <laughs> well, we will have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Chicago Tribune state politics reporter Dan Petrella, Crane's Daily Gist host Amy Guth. Be sure to check out that podcast and WBEZ senior editor for education Kate Grossman. Everybody, thanks so much. Thank thanks, you. And that's your Friday News Roundup for the second week of March. Watch your feed for a Sunday podcast. We'll move away from the heavy coronavirus talk and dive into the unwritten rules of living in Chicago. That'll drop just in time for your Sunday coffee. Until then, take good care of yourself. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. 